0: Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast, I'm Mary Joe. Today is the 12th of December of 2020, and the article that I'm going to be using as a citation, and definitely something that you could use to verify all my work, was published just last month in the Journal of Intensive Care Society. The article is titled, Management of Hypercapnia in Critically Ill Mechanically Ventilated Patients, a Narrative Review of the Literature. I definitely recommend that you check it out yourself and don't trust me. After all, none of this is medical advice. But for those of us who are in the ICU, especially those of us taking care of patients caught up in this pandemic, we have learned that certain patients, once you put them on the ventilator, can be quite challenging to both oxygenate as well as ventilate. For the uninitiated, the whole purpose of mechanical ventilation is to be a band-aid of sorts for the patients who can't get oxygen through their lungs or get the carbon dioxide out of their lungs. And... We're being quite precise with our wording here. When we say we cannot ventilate someone, well, that means that we can't get the CO2 out of them, and they go into what we call hypercapnic respiratory failure. When we cannot oxygenate these patients and their PaO2 is low or their SAO2 is low, being SAO2 being on the SATS, these patients are in hypoxemic respiratory failure. When you say you cannot oxygenate these patients, there's a combination of these two of course and some patients are intubated because of hypercapnia and some just go ahead and develop hypercapnia while they're on the ventilator. Long story short is that it gets quite tricky and we need to be very very intentional with our methods on these patients because we could actually end up causing further harm if we make a mistake. So a mistake is definitely not something that's tolerable in my book. I will disclose that I cannot go into every single nuance and detailed mechanical ventilation. After all this is just a podcast that's Only a few minutes long, usually to learn how to run mechanical ventilation appropriately. And well, you know, it takes years of training and a lot, a lot of reading. I can't do all this on this podcast. So that's why I say don't trust me. This is meant to be more so of a quick guide and a jump off point for you to do your own personal deeper dive. This is not medical advice. The problem with these patients who become hypercapnic is that it induces a respiratory acidosis. Patients try to compensate for this respiratory acidosis due to the increase in carbon dioxide by increasing their own serum bicarb. For this, obviously, you need some kidneys to sort this out. And also, this does not happen overnight. As a side point, many of you may already know this. But for those of you who don't, if you want to be able to recognize a patient with chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure, you know, one of these CO2 retainers. One thing you can do is note what their serum bicarb level is on the date of admission. As many of us know, normal serum bicarb is usually between 22 to 26. When these patients arrive at the hospital and their serum bicarb is in the 30s, say 36, 38, even in the 40s, they're most likely underlying chronic retainers. Generally speaking, I suspect that they have either underlying COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, a combination of the three, or other differentials. These days, we're seeing a lot of patients with hypercapnic respiratory failure. In other words, patients who we cannot ventilate in our current pandemic population. We're using to try to help out these patients ARDS strategies to help oxygenate and ventilate. So some of the things you need to know about strategies for ARDS management of patients is that we have learned that using low tidal volumes are beneficial for patients with ARDS. What we try to use is 4 to 6 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight and set that as a tidal volume. Then we set the respiratory rate according to hit our desired minute ventilation. Minute ventilation is an equation which is respiratory rate times tidal volume. It's really, really not complicated at all because you can see the respiratory rate that the patient's actually breathing and you set the tidal volume on the ventilator. Normal minute ventilation, is usually between 5 to 8 liters per minute. So these are a bunch of little nuggets that you're getting that could hopefully help you manage your patients at least a little bit better. Obviously, this is not all-inclusive data that I'm giving you here. If the patient is found to be hypercapnic, in other words, the PCO2 is elevated on the blood gas, that means that we're not able to blow off enough carbon dioxide. We aren't ventilating these patients well enough. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. In my practice, I allow for a term called permissive hypercapnia. To me, this means that I allow the CO2 to climb to a point where the body develops a respiratory acidosis. Each clinician has their own threshold as to what they accept for permissive hypercapnia, but I honestly have no qualms with the pH hitting 7.25 on these patients. Obviously, hemodynamic stability is the key. Some patients will not tolerate that pH, that's every patient is different. Other patients will tolerate pH is less than 7.25. Remember, every patient is different. And when you get these patients who you're having a hard time oxygenating, hard time ventilating, I mean, this is the, the definition of critical care. Obviously, this is not medical advice. But this strategy of using permissive hypercapnia is encompassed in this whole lung protective strategy that's described in the literature. Going back to these landmark papers in critical care, we need to go back to the ARDSNET papers, which is A-R-D-S-N-E-T, ARDSNET, where they found that using 6 cc per kilogram of ideal body weight is crucial to prevent ventilator-induced lung injury. We also need to keep the plateau pressures under 30 on these patients. Some people don't know what a plateau pressure is. I definitely recommend you look it up. But your butt-kicking RT can teach you how you can obtain these numbers from the ventilator. Permissive hypercapnia came to be when they realized that trying to obtain the perfect blood gas by increasing the pressures necessary to ventilate the patient actually ended up causing harm to our patients. And this is something we should never do. We should never cause harm to our patients. Now, there are schools of thought out there that say that the hypercapnia is actually beneficial to the patients, and I'm not going to get into the arguments for and against this. Instead, let's go ahead and dig into the strategies mentioned in the cited papers with my own on them. First let's look at the ventilator changes for hypercapnic respiratory failure starting off with minute ventilation. As I mentioned earlier minute ventilation is respiratory rate times tidal volume. Some ventilators will have this information listed on the screen so you can eyeball this number and keep an eye on it. It definitely makes life a lot easier. The number as I mentioned before is hopefully between five to eight. For ARDS patients you really don't have much wiggle room with regards to the tidal volume. As, as I mentioned before, this should be set at 6 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight or less. So that leaves you with the respiratory rate knob as the one that you could turn. And when I say you, I mean the respiratory therapist. They're the owners of the vent and you really, really shouldn't touch them. Although I must admit that I love turning the knobs and pushing the buttons, but I always tell my friendly neighborhood respiratory therapist. Notice how I'm not talking about ventilator modes here. I'm not talking about PRVC. Uh, assist control volume control simv i'm not talking about ventilator modes here that's that's honestly a conversation for a different day and that would take several hours for me to get through and i'm also not going to get through all the waveforms and all that jazz just know that you can adjust the respiratory rate and that could be a quick way of increasing your minute ventilation and therefore help correct the hypercapnic respiratory failure that your patient is currently enduring But obviously, there's some nuance that goes with this because there's a lot of nuance to all of this. And again, I will say again, this takes years to master. Okay, don't think that this podcast is going to be your end-all, be-all. Hopefully, it's going to stimulate your thought process to try to go down this rabbit hole because it's a lot of fun. But one of the things you also need to look at is the I to E ratio. And that is your inspiratory time to expiratory time ratio. Typically speaking, our I to E ratio, and when I say ours, I mean yours and mine right now who are spontaneously breathing, is at about one to three one second to go ahead and inhale think about it you're inhaling right now that's about one second and three seconds to exhale and in many patients who are hypercapnic they're not exhaling as much many of the vents go ahead and set these patients up at an ide ratio of one to one right off the bat which is obviously not going to do a good job at allowing people to ventilate properly so you may have to go ahead and shorten the inspiratory time to allow for some more expiratory time so that the patient could blow off more CO2. Or you could just go ahead and extend the expiratory time. Um, But it is important for these patients that the respiratory therapist check to see if the patient is developing something called auto-peep. And this is also called breath stacking. In other words, their E time is not long enough, so you need to shorten their I time a little bit more. This question always comes up on the boards, and this is an aside, okay? This is just a little little pearl for those of you who are going to take your internal medicine boards, emergency medicine boards, or critical care boards, because it always shows up. You have a patient who is on the ventilator, they're asthmatic, and all of a sudden, they arrest while they're on the vent, or they become hemodynamically unstable. It asks, what should you do? And the answer to this question is to go ahead and disconnect the patient from the ventilator. Because disconnecting them from the ventilator allows all this trapped pressure slash auto peep to go ahead and escape the patient's chest and then they get better all of a sudden. But before I diverted to that board question, there are other tricks that you could do such as optimizing your sedation and sometimes even reaching for a paralytic. Obviously, you're going to paralyze your patient after they're under deep sedation to help ventilate the patient better and help them set, set up on the ventilator properly. Remember, all these patients who are in ARDS, severe respiratory failure, uh, hypercapnic, etc., they're really, really trying to fight to blow off their CO2, okay? And nobody wants to be on a vent. A lot of these patients are just not, not adherent to the ventilator unless you deeply sedate them. So another strategy that we could use to improve the ventilation of these patients is actually to recruit more lung. And increasing the PEEP is another strategy that we could use to improve ventilation. It's okay if you didn't think about this one at first, but try to follow along. But I will say I'm not going to talk about driving pressure and lung compliance here. Again, I can't talk about all the nuance. You can look that up for yourself if you're really, really interested in doing it. Again, I'm just trying to fix the problem right off the bat for these patients when you really, really can't ventilate them. When you look at basic ventilator settings, we all know the ways that we could increase the oxygenation is to turn up the PEEP and turn up the FiO2. And if we want to go ahead and increase ventilation, as I mentioned before, you could either increase the respiratory rate or increase the tidal volume. There's obviously a lot more to that than, than what I'm going to describe here, but bear with me. PEEP helps to recruit the alveoli by popping open the either atelectatic or consolidated alveoli. All of a sudden, these alveoli, which one wasn't able to ventilate from was is all of a sudden open. So therefore, you know, they're able to oxygenate a little bit better from them as well as ventilate a little bit better from these alveoli. When I go ahead and I place patients on APRV, for example, which APRV is short for airway pressure release ventilation, it's a mode that I've discussed before on the website, but not before on this podcast. And, you know, you, you have to be careful with this uh, with this mode of ventilation and oxygenation. But you need to be careful with patients who... Have hypercapnia. And again, I'm not going to go through all the nuance of APRV. I typically don't put any patients on APRV if I'm having a very, very challenging time ventilating them because this tends to get worse before it gets better. There are patients who you place on APRV with a baseline, say, PCO2 in the 70s, and then after several hours on APRV, their PCO2 is now in the 50s. Well, you might ask yourself, what in the world just happened here? And it turns out that APRV helped recruit those alveoli that those avioli, excuse me, that weren't recruited before. And now the patient's hypercapnic respiratory failure has all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I can't speak today, it has improved. So it's a different strategy that's mentioned in this article and one that I have used myself in the past with great success. And then we have the strategy of proning these patients. And most of us who work in the ICUs are currently doing this as standard of care for patients who have PF ratios less than 150, who are on mechanical ventilation, because that's what the Proceva trial went ahead and showed us, that by proning patients, we could improve oxygenation as well as ventilation in these arch patients. So, it's another helpful tool. Also, keep in mind that the longer you keep people proned, the better it is. Usually speaking, it has to be about 16 hours that you keep people in their prone patients. Positioning. So now I'm going to mention one of these things that I do not personally like, and it, I think it might be completely wrong in patients who have hypercapnic respiratory failure. And that's the idea of putting these people on bicarb drips. Some people like to put patients who as I said, have hypercapnic respiratory failure, and the subsequent respiratory acidosis on bicarb drips. As my career has advanced, you know, believe it or not, I'm actually reading a lot more now than I ever did in medical school, residency, or even fellowship for that matter, because I've felt like I've had a lot of holes in my physiology knowledge, and therefore I've worked really hard to try to increase this. I've begun to think that the concept of giving these people bicarb does not make sense. Let me give you a little bit of an explanation of why, and again, I don't I don't know this with 100% certainty, but then again, I haven't found any data to either support what I'm saying or refute it. So I might be completely wrong or completely right. But the shorthand is that bicarb is ultimately metabolized into carbon dioxide and water. And for our patients to be able to ventilate, obviously they need to get rid of that carbon dioxide that's in the serum. So if we can't get rid of carbon dioxide via the lungs, then by us giving a substrate to create Carbon dioxide in the bicarb is this actually worsening the acidosis? How is the conversion of bicarb to carbon dioxide that we find in the like? What's the, what's the benefit to the pH for the amount of CO2 that's going to go up and and the respiratory acidosis that takes place because of this? I mean, again, I I don't know the answer to this, but if you do know the answer to this, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram. My website, my email, which you can email me at eddijomd at gmail.com. Something to help me figure this stuff out because I've honestly asked other clinicians who are smarter than I am about this and no one seems to know the answer. So your, your guess is as good as mine. One of the last things I'm going to discuss is ECMO and extracorporeal CO2 removal devices because these are basically the last strategies we can use to get rid of CO2 in these patients and correct the respiratory acidosis. I'm not going to get too much into into ECMO because, um, you know, if you work in an ECMO center, you already know this. If you uh, are not in an ECMO center, how you make adjustments to the ECMO circuit in order to ventilate the patients better is going to go way over your head when I start talking about sweep gases and all that. But other institutions have these things called extracorporeal CO2 removal devices. I've never worked at one of these places. If you do do this, please let me know what you do at your institution because I like to learn a little bit more about it, I won't go into it too much here. But you can check out more in the cited article, which again is free. But this seems to be concluding up things in hypercapnic respiratory failure, and obviously I didn't go up into absolutely everything in these patients because you know it's cumbersome to do so via a podcast. But I do hope that you were able to learn a thing or two about how to manage these patients who are on mechanical ventilation. Please check out the cited article, as I mentioned, it's free for to download. Don't trust me. It's in the show notes. Please do all that stuff. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate a five-star review as it helps the podcast grow. If you're watching this on YouTube, a thumbs up, share, subscribe, like with your friends. Go to Eddie Joe MD. Check out everything that I have listed there. Again, thank you all very much for your support. This has been a fun, fun ride, everybody. Have a great day. Bye.